Chances are when you watch an NFL game on Sunday, one of the quarterbacks under center for either team was tutored by Terry Shea. Terry is one of the great quarterback gurus of our generation. He was an assistant coach with the Kansas City Chiefs back in the early 2000s under Dick Vermeil and also studied under Bill Walsh. Plus, he was the head football coach at Rutgers. Here's my conversation with coaching legend Terry Shea. Robert Griffin III, Blaine Gabbert, Josh Freeman, Sam Bradford, Matt Stafford, Trent Green. Like, I am going through this list of guys that you have mentored and turned into first-round draft picks and wonderful players at the NFL level. Out of all of those quarterbacks that I just mentioned, who was the most fun you had? Well, I have to say the most fun and the most embracing and the most energy came from Robert Griffin. And uh, that was... uh, you know, a time when he just came out of Baylor as the Heisman Trophy winner. So he was uh, all over the, you know, the, the map in terms of his profile and his, his reputation. But he was, uh, he was just very, very fun to coach, fun to be around, and uh, very talented. When you get these guys in a room and you have your first meeting with them and you say, I'm going to be your quarterback whisperer or quarterback guru, whatever it is, what are you telling these kids? Like, What's the first thing you tell every one of these kids about being a quarterback and being successful? Well, I, I have a, a blueprint that I try to follow and I try to allow the quarterbacks to understand how important it is. And I, I begin with the fact that young quarterback, you're 22 years of age, you're, you haven't taken one snap yet in the NFL You've got to develop from the waist down. And so consequently, you know, the quarterbacks who who have success in the NFL are guys that uh, have tremendous feet. They have tremendous balance. And uh, it's like poetry in motion for most of them. And consequently, that's where I begin. Uh, And you might say, well, geez, Robert Griffin was maybe uh, one of the more special athletes to ever play the position. The fact that he was a track athlete and so forth. But he still needed to learn how to, how to you know maneuver his feet in the pocket off of a drop back drop back option, and and that's what uh, a lot of the college guys don't have enough polish and don't have enough refinement uh, in their background to to advance to the NFL coming right out of the shoots. It's so hard to make it into the NFL as a quarterback right away. I mean, what we're seeing right now with this Patrick Mahomes is like is 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 I guess the exception, maybe the new norm. I don't know. But it seems like it's always taking guys a while to finally get their feet under them in the NFL. This kid's kind of hit the ground running. Why do you think he's been able to go boom right away and have this success where a lot of guys, it takes them a couple of years? Well, I've never had the privilege to be around Patrick, but uh, uh, when I think back to all the other special quarterbacks I've had the privilege to be around, I would have to think that for every quarterback that has success coming out of college, uh, it starts with accuracy and i don't mean just the passing completion percentage that is a statistic that you know the media seems to be able to to recognize but it's what can a quarterback do percentage wise and accurately to throw the ball to moving targets and so um, i'm sure patrick mahomes brought that with him uh from the college game but then it it advances beyond that it, they have to have uh, great vision and oftentimes uh quarterbacks don't anticipate well enough and they they play in that spread offense in college and consequently they they wait for the receiver to to open or to separate whereas in the NFL you you don't have that opportunity you've got to anticipate when to throw the ball that's a that's a great tra- trait for a quarterback and then he's got to have fast eyes and and you don't have any way to measure that until you get the young quarterback in your camp 
on your field and you work hip to hip with him. And consequently, and then you start to appreciate the fact that he has fast eyes. And I think the separator that probably Patrick Mahomes brings, but it's the separator, in my opinion, between college and NFL is a quick arm or a, a fast arm. And that seems to be what Patrick has. And uh, not every quarterback brings that to the NFL. Consequently, you have a lot of washouts. You know, it's it's funny you mentioned the fast eyes thing because years ago somebody had told us, you know, one time about like Trent Green's eyes aren't fast enough, and I, I think they were talking about Trent, and we kind of laughed it off. And what are you talking about, fast eyes? Explain what exactly you mean by that, because like from from a you know from a layman's terms, they're going fast eyes. What the heck is fast eyes all about? Well, I I would argue against that. Uh, you know that label for Trent Green. Maybe it was it was Matt Castle. Okay. That's what it was. It was okay. Matt Castle. That's because I remember coaching Trent and uh, one of the all time best quarterbacks I've ever been around. But and he was so special on game day because of his leadership. But he would come off the field and say, "Now Terry, here's what I saw the defensive end do," and then the linebacker came over the top, and then the strong safety showed up in the hole. And I'd said to myself, "Man, how does he see all that?" So I turn the film on on Monday, following the game on on Sunday, and I'll say to myself, I'll be darned, that's exactly the way Trent described it. So what the fast eyes is a is a trait that I really believe is obviously inherent in, you know, maybe it's a gift. Uh, maybe it's something you develop over years and seasons of playing the position, but it's the ability to to see the opponent's color meaning opposite jersey color and you're able to feel your receivers and not necessarily have to look to the receivers as much as you keep your eyes on the opponent or on the coverage and consequently you're able to throw the ball accurately and and uh, with lower risk so that's what i mean by fast eyes you know probably the more present day quarterback who seems to be acclaimed to having fast eyes is uh, drew Brees Mm -hmm. and uh I remember working Drew out um, when he came out of college when I was with the Chiefs, and and we went to Purdue and we worked him out. And somebody said, you know, Drew Brees is a gym rat, you know, and basically that meant that he never went home. He, he but he played basketball, and and I think there's a there's a carryover between having the ability to kind of peripheral uh, see the the court as a basketball player, and that carries over to to playing quarterback. Why didn't you draft Drew Brees? <laughs> well, we were not in the mode of of drafting a quarterback in the first round. You know, we we had traded for Trent Green two years prior to that, mm-hmm. and Trent was uh, uh, our first round draft pick. Is really how it all came down. So uh, we were not going to draft a quarterback in the first round in those days of uh, you know Dick Vermeil and Ralph and. Uh, and Carl Peterson. You know, it, it, it's interesting because up until Patrick Mahomes, the Chiefs didn't take a quarterback in the first round since Todd Blackledge back in 1983. I mean, that's a long time without drafting a quarterback in the first round. And from your experience being inside that organization, I always say it because this is kind of how I feel about it, but I feel there was a little gun shyness based on the fact that Blackledge failed so bad at the NFL that the organization just went, we want to go with the safe pick. We want to go with the guy that we know has experience in the NFL. We don't want to waste time trying to groom a kid to be a star quarterback in this league. Do you feel that was the sense of the organization when you were there? Well, it it certainly played out that way. I I can't say that it was uh, the driving force because I remember uh, there was a quarterback coming out of Oregon, Joey Harrington. Yeah, and uh, we were we were positioned. We were down in the draft 
uh, order, but we were positioned that if he were to have dropped, we were ready to to possibly draft Joey Harrington. So that would have been a first round draft pick in mm-hmm. terms of quarterback. Joey was was picked very high. Consequently, we moved on, and uh, I guess probably one of the quarterbacks that I was involved with that we actually chose was uh, Brody Croyle, mm-hmm. and that was a third round pick. He was certainly not a first round. Uh, pick and so consequently uh, that might have been one of the m- more recent quarterbacks that the, the Chiefs really drafted but you know that th- there's a sense that when you when you have your guy and we did we had Trent Green and he was healthy at the time and and there was no reason for us to to bring in a, a first-round draft pick when we had so many other needs. Yeah, that is true. I mean, all those needs on the defensive side of the football or even at the wide receiver position, you know, quarterback was probably the least of your worries. But, like, the fans of this franchise have clamored for so long. we got to get that quarterback. We want our guy. We want our guy. And I tell everybody now, well, the wait was worth it now because you got this kid who's throwing the ball all around the yard and looking like an all-pro through his first eight games of the season. So when you think about drafting a quarterback, when you're looking at these kids in college right now, what do you have to see to say, I really believe that this guy has what it takes to play in the NFL? Well, what I try to look for is, does he play at a high level at critical parts of the game? And in college, you have a 11-, 12-game schedule, and you may only have two or three close games. Uh, for example, we're looking now at this young Alabama quarterback phenom who hasn't even played much in the fourth. He, in fact, I don't think he's played at all in the fourth quarter. So that happens to college quarterbacks is that they probably get into two or three, four really tight contested games, and do they play at a high level? at the critical parts of those games. That's what I look for. And I, I think back to Joy Harrington's name, mm-hmm. and he came out of Oregon at the That's time. That's your alma mater, too, yes, right? Yes, yeah. so, <laughs> so I was a little bit uh, biased toward, toward Joey. But he, was, he had a reputation for, I think he had something like 12 or 14 different uh, two-minute drives that led to points that made the difference in a game. And that was at the end of the first half or at the end of the game. So... Over his career, he really put together uh, a great profile. I think that's what you look for primarily when you look at the college quarterbacks of today. Some of these guys, Bob, are, are winning 50 to 12 Saturday after Saturday, so they don't have that stress that you have in the NFL. Uh, it's from Sunday to Sunday. So that's what I try to find in a quarterback is, does he perform at his best when the critical parts of the game are on top of him, uh, does he bring his team back? And how well does he play at the end of the first half? Mm-hmm. And how well does he play at the end of the game? Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, we, we talk about it a lot. You know, like guys get up to the big league level in baseball or to the NFL level. And for all those years that that was leading up to that, they were better than everybody else. So they didn't have to work as hard or deal with as much adversity because they were just better than everybody else. And then you get to the big leagues or then you get to the NFL and you're like, holy crap, everybody's pretty good up here. I got I to gotta work differently. I got to work harder and do things differently. That's an interesting comment that you had about what you you look at it in a quarterback is how they handle pressure because a lot of those guys don't handle pressure in college. Oh, and and you talk about pressure. Uh, every time you step on the field as an NFL quarterback, you are under that stress level, and there's such a premium on winning. Uh, so consequently, the quarterback has to be the driving force. I remember working with Blaine Gabbert mm-hmm. coming out of college, uh, Sam Bradford, and those guys went to the NFL, and they started their very first season. Blaine was way too young. He, he he was young coming out of college to begin with. Sam Bradford 
had uh, had an injury his senior season, so he had to rally from that. He didn't play much as a senior after his Heisman year. So consequently, those guys were thrown into the mix at the very onset of their NFL career. They they became uh, a little bit gun shy. They they started to get the reputation of having happy feet, and all of that's a product of pushing your quarterback into the into the competition way too early. And for Patrick Mahomes, here's a, a young guy that's had the same play caller in his head coach, whereas Sam Bradford had three different offensive coordinators in three different years. Blaine Gabbard had two different offensive coordinators in two years. You just don't survive that. And consequently, I think Mahomes is in a good place. How many of the quarterbacks that fail in the NFL are a product of their surroundings versus themselves? Oh, I I think that plays out because a lot of times the top quarterbacks are taken by the weaker teams because of the order of the draft. And consequently, you don't, you don't have a surrounding cast. Uh, I, I remember, uh, as good a quarterback as Sam Bradford was in college, accurate, uh, threw the ball like the doggone, the ball would melt in your hand. You know, uh, the, today's the day of the, one-handed catch by the you know Beckham and the, and all those kind of receivers. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a product of your quarterback throwing a real tight spiral, and the ball just kind of softens itself as it hits the hands of the receiver. A lot of guys can catch those balls one-handed. Well, that's what Bradford was all about, and he just boy he just uh, got into that mode where where he had to play right away, and the pressure got to him. Consequently. You know, he was on a downward spiral from that point on. Yeah, and and also, too, I think you make a a good point with the the guys surrounding you. I mean, Patrick Mahomes is a very good quarterback. There's no question. But when you have Andy Reid as your head coach, when you have a guy like Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey and Kareem Hunt and Sammy Watkins around you, like this organization has done everything to make sure that Patrick Mahomes has the ability to go out there and be successful. Like you couldn't have asked for a better situation for a young quarterback to come into than what he walked himself into. And I think all those guys you mentioned from Gabbert to Josh Freeman, even to Sam Bradford, if they were put in a situation like Mahomes has been put in, maybe they are playing at the level that Patrick Mahomes is playing at right now. No doubt. No doubt whatsoever. You know, and and Patrick, uh, shoot, he had a great unselfish mentor in Alex Smith. Mm-hmm. And not every quarterback is privileged to have that. I could tell you some stories about Blaine Gabbert that would just, you know, raise your, raise your hair. Uh, I mean, in terms of how selfish some of these NFL quarterbacks can become because their job is jeopardized by the young talent coming up behind him. So consequently, uh, you know, Patrick has that, that built in security blanket right now. And, and he's, he's off and running, you know, you look back, it's, it's such a simple formula that the NFL owners uh, allow their egos to get involved. And consequently you don't have the same consistency like you have at the chiefs right now, mm-hmm. but you look at the Tom Brady success he did, he didn't start as a as a rookie. He came in and played under the shadow of a a very experienced NFL quarterback and then he grew and then he he got a shot and he's had the same system for years. Well, that's what you have with the Patrick Mahomes and uh you look at how another quarterback that I was really privileged to have uh as a as a trainee was Matthew Stafford and he's gone through about in his career he's gone through probably six different head coaches probably six or more offensive coordinators. So consequently, his career has kind of been a road of 
up and down. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, the Tom Brady's of this world or the or the um, uh, Aaron Rodgers of this world experience a more consistent path because they've had a more consistent supporting staff. Yeah, and and you, you mentioned that leadership that Alex Smith provided or mentorship that Alex Smith provided for him, and we hear that all the time. And sometimes we'll just kind of laugh and go, man, if I was in that situation, I don't know that I'd handle it the way that Alex Smith did because you're fighting for your job at that point in time. You've got this young kid who wants to take your job, and I think – as sports fans, we we take for granted that the older guys are just going to groom this next young guy to be the man to take over. Brett Favre didn't do that with Aaron Rodgers. He fought that thing tooth and nail. I think Alex Smith is more the exception than the rule to to way the the older guys kind of act. You know? Well, he might be. Uh, I I do know that I remember Alex coming out of college at the time, and we were at the combine, and and he was a very bright young guy who uh, dazzled you with his ability to break down coverages and and uh, he ended up being the number one pick that year mm-hmm. so uh you had a very bright young man uh probably a guy who was very balanced and he knew exactly uh what success how how it was defined and in his mind um he was able to mentor a younger quarterback and bring him along as well as any coach on that coaching staff did so consequently uh you have to really applaud alex smith and he may be uh, unique. Uh, you know, I, I hear different stories around the league of, of some of these more modern-day quarterbacks, and um, you would hope that there's a few more Alex Smiths out there. What do you? What did you uh, hear from Blaine Gabbard about the way he had to be handled and, and treated when he was a rookie out there? Well, you know, Blaine was scheduled to uh, uh, be the backup, and uh, I forget the quarterback's name. He was a he was a veteran quarterback, had played in the league. And then all of a sudden he had a, a back injury and Blaine was thrown in uh, during training camp. And, uh, you, you you know, you had a team that was very limited in terms of supporting personnel. Mm-hmm. So consequently, Blaine had to jump in there and play like a, a an NFL quarterback who had very little, um, you know, very little uh, uh, supporting background in, in his in his ability to come in and play as a young rookie so consequently he really went through a tough time he got traded after a couple of years he goes to the 49ers um and then there he he um he battled uh Kaepernick mm-hmm. and Kaepernick was injured at the time and and um Blaine got the starting job I think uh, Kelly was the head coach at the time and Blaine got the starting job and and he played for six or seven games and then they benched him and brought in Kaepernick to finish the season but Blaine would you know, Blaine would be the first to say, boy, he, he did not receive any, any support when he was at Jacksonville, when he was at the 49ers from the competition or from the other starting quarterback that he had to deal with. How much of that is a reflection of the head coach, too? Well, do you think Vermeil would let that fly? Like if, if that was his room, would do you think he would handle that situation and, and allow the lead quarterback or the, the, the old dog, if you will, to treat the other guys like junk and not try to help them through the system? No, no doubt that he would, uh, he would find a way to, to correct that. Yeah. You know, coach Vermeil was such a, a player's coach that he, he seemed to have the heartbeat of every player on that football team. And, we were very fortunate at the time with the Chiefs. We had Todd Collins as the backup, and Trent couldn't have had a better guy than Todd Collins or Damon Heward. Mm-hmm. Uh, those guys were tremendous. They were veterans, but they knew their role, and they gave Trent all the support that he needed. 
And when you don't have that support in that quarterback room, you don't have a chance. You do not have a chance to play at a high level consistently because you just don't have the support that you need to overcome all the different obstacles that you're asked to overcome as an NFL starting quarterback. Yeah, I, I think we were talking about it the other day on the show about that backup quarterback situation. And since Andy Reid has come in, he's always had a guy that was clearly the backup. You're the backup, know your role. Whether it was Chase Daniel or whether it was even you know last year looking at at, uh, at uh, Patrick Mahomes as the backup to Alex Smith, and now this year you're looking at Chad Henney, the clear backup to Patrick Mahomes, is, is not only finding a guy that you think is a good football player that can be your backup, but also finding the guy with the right mindset that can go in there and understand his role, that you are the backup quarterback and you're not here to take anybody's job. You're here to help somebody along. I mean, that's going to be hard to find that guy oh it it can be very tricky and uh you're 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 not paying that backup quarterback uh you know this the same salary that uh, maybe he earned as a starting quarterback mm-hmm. at some point in his career but you look at uh uh chase daniels now chase you know he started some games in his career but he was primarily a backup role player but todd collins was a starting quarterback for the buffalo bills at one point uh so damon Ewer got a chance to start a number of games when he was playing in the NFL before he became a backup at the Chiefs. So consequently, I think if you can find a guy like Chad Henning who has played, who has started, he ha- he has an appreciation for what it means to be a starter. Mm-hmm. Now he's in the support role. Uh, those guys are worth their weight in gold. And uh, uh, you, you don't find enough teams understanding that. I didn't realize how valuable and important the backup was to have that right mindset until really this year when Chase Daniel was a free agent and the Chiefs wanted to bring him back. And Matt Nagy, who was his coach here in Kansas City, now with the Bears, offered him like $2 million more a year. And I, and I remember having a conversation with somebody up in Chicago. I'm like, what are you doing paying Chase all that money? They go, you don't understand how valuable he is to have in a room with a young quarterback to be the backup and to be a mentor. And I thought, huh, that's a real interesting way to look at it, that they use him as an extension of the coaching staff. And those guys are few and far between that you can do that with. Oh, no doubt. And there's a great example of Matt Nagy, you know, uh, a product of, of uh, uh, Coach Andy Reid. You know, I, you just... You just can't replace knowledge when it comes to being an NFL head football coach. And that's what baffles me the most is some of these guys that are hired to be the leaders of an NFL team and they have no history that a Matt Nagy would have had, uh, coaching under Andy Reid. And, mm-hmm. and you can, you can find that in a lot of situations in the NFL. There are so many bad head coaches and bad quarterbacks in the NFL. Like it drives me nuts. I look around, and I go, what are you doing out there? Like how, why are you leading this organization? Why are you the quarterback of this organization? And when I look at Andy Reid and I look at Patrick Mahomes now, and even Alex Smith in the past, I look at the, the stability and, and with you guys, with Vermeil and, and, and Trent Green here, you look at that stability that you guys were able to have. And you really appreciate it more when you look around this league and you see this guy's here for three years. This guy's here for two years. This guy's fired after his first year. And they, they don't understand how to be head coaches and how to be true quarterbacks in this level. So when you get something like we have right now here in Kansas City, you really got to appreciate it because I think we're the we're the exception and not necessarily the rule to the NFL right now. Oh, no no question. And, you know, you look at a Dick Vermeil who has that great history of coming to the Chiefs. I mean, you, you can't you can't fabricate that. You can't just create that. So Dick Vermeil obviously knew how to put together a quarterback room and a and a football team as best he could, and uh, you see that you see that on 
you know, very few coaches have that ability to to uh, use their history and to capture that uh, that kind of a, a football situation where you have built-in success. I remember coaching with Marty Schottenheimer, Bob. Uh, it was in the UFL. Uh, it was a it was a, a, a an upstage league that was trying to make a go of it. Mm-hmm. And Marty was he was just adamant about bringing in a a backup quarterback at the time who had experience. He was not going to let some young phenom uh, become our backup quarterback. I remember we had uh, um, the uh, the young guy out of West Virginia. His last name was White, and he was at Heisman Trophy when he was mm-hmm. he was competing for one of the positions on that team. And that I re- I'm referencing, and and um, we had to cut him because that did not fit Marty Schottenheimer's definition of who a backup quarterback should be. Which football league haven't you coached in? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you what. I, <laughs> probably the Football Legends, which is a uh, a female league that's seven-on-seven seven tackle football. I haven't quite coached in that one yet. There's still an opportunity for you to do that, right, though, if they call you? <laughs> I know. Somebody just emailed me the other day, and he said, I'm, I'm bringing a team to Kansas City, and we're the Football Legends in uh uh, you're, I understand you're an established coach in the Kansas City area. Would you like to interview for the head job here to coach our, our, our women, uh, seven on seven football tackle? And I, I, you know, so that's one league I haven't coached. In well, how did you respond to that email? <laughs> I said, well, you know, I've got to go to the spring league this next week and, and coach, uh, that event. And then, uh, I'll be available for an interview following. Yeah. There you go. You got, you got, got to take them up on it. I, I would have said cash in advance and I'll be there. Right. You know, you got to get paid <laughs> yeah. to do all this. You probably get calls like that all the time though. Don't you to say, Hey, we got this football league. We got that football league. We want you to be a part of this. We want you to be a part of that. Well, you know, I, I get calls and, uh, a lot of them, uh, come around the quarterback training opportunity. You know, I'll, I'll train a quarterback. It seems like every year for the NFL draft, and, and uh, uh, this year I've got a young guy that might end up in my in my responsibility from Northwestern. His name is Clayton Thorson, and mm-hmm. he's uh, got a big game this weekend against Notre Dame. So um, that that could happen. Uh, but um, you know, I I uh, I just enjoy the game and I enjoy passing along my, my knowledge, this uh, new league that's just upon us. I don't know, Bob, if you heard about it, it's the Alliance of American football. Mm -hmm. And there are eight teams and there's some neat coaches heading up the teams, you know, Dennis Erickson, uh, um, uh, uh, the uh, old Florida coach uh, Spurrier. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Mike Riley and I, I really, Dick Vermeil had called and said, Terry, would you like to coach in that league? And I said, sure. And, uh, so we we tried to see if there was uh, going to be a phone call, and I never got that phone call to be a head coach in the league. So uh, I'm going back with the spring league, which is a, a, a great league to be in. And you've had a g- pretty good experience in there, and, and one of the guys you got to work with was, was Johnny Manziel, one of the most fascinating athletes we've seen in the last decade. What was what was your time like with Johnny Manziel? Well, for the for the fans to who are who might be listening, um, the spring league is is an event. Or an opportunity for free agents to come and practice, uh, and practice with each other. And the scouts will come and watch practice. And then we'll play a game at the end of the week in Austin, Texas, where we had Johnny Manziel. We actually had two games because we were there for two weeks. Uh, this event coming up is only a four day event. So we, we just play one game. So it's along the lines of an all star model where you come and you practice together and then you have a game and everything's videoed so that NFL and the CFL and 
and these new fledging leagues will get a chance to to watch. But uh, in Johnny's case, uh, Manziel, I'd never been around Manziel. I, I, at that year, I trained Colin Klein coming out of uh, K State, mm-hmm. and I was a big Colin Klein fan. And and Johnny actually beat Colin out for the Heisman that year. And uh, so consequently, I didn't know anything about Johnny Manziel other than his reputation. And uh, he gets in there, and uh, man, he he's got a quick mind. He's he's he loves football. And, uh, he, he will make plays. You talk about a guy who probably has fast eyes. I, I would concur now, having spent two weeks with Johnny Manziel, that he's got extremely quick eyes. And, uh, consequently, uh, he was a, he was really good to coach. And, uh, I'll tell you a quick story. So the, the spring league, we don't have a lot of attendance in our, our games. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we may get a hundred fans to come out and watch a game, but all of a sudden we're walking out first time we're playing with Johnny Manziel in Austin, Texas. And there must be close to a thousand people in this, in the stands. And I'm saying, whoa, this is a record breaker. And it was all Johnny Manziel. Yeah. I mean, he, he's a, he's a cult hero and he, 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 he brings a, an army of people that, that love him. And consequently, uh, we, we had a, a good event down there in Austin, Texas, but Johnny has married a young lady who came out of Southern California and she's a game changer for Johnny. Johnny's had some obviously tough issues to overcome. And she is on top of it. I, I remember she'd text me and she'd say, now, Coach A, does Johnny need to be here at this particular time or does he need to bring this? You know, and so she was micromanaging uh, her her new husband. And now Johnny's up in Canada trying to resurrect his career. What do you think about his opportunity to play in the NFL? Do you think he'll get that? And, and will he be able to do that? Well, he's he's uh, he's very challenged right now up in, in the Canadian League. He, he hasn't met uh, that league with great success in his very first year. Mm-hmm. If he were to stay in his second year and have more success, then I think somebody, if if uh, Johnny were healthy, and, uh, and I have no reason to believe he's not, he, w- he would have a chance to come back to the NFL – uh, as did Jeff Garcia. I don't know if our, our listening audience remembers that name, but Jeff Garcia spent years up in the NFL mm-hmm. or as a CFL, as did, um, uh, Flutie. Mm-hmm. You know, Doug Flutie was up there and, and, uh, uh, there's been a couple of success stories, and yeah. Johnny might be one of them. Yeah, Warren Moon too spent Warren some time. Warren Moon, up yes, there Bob, Canada. that's exactly right. You know, there, there's a lot of guys that you bloom late. You know, some guys bloom early. We're seeing an early bloomer here in Kansas City, and, and I think a lot of his success has to do with Andy Reid and, and maybe the league as a whole too, because it seems like more and more we're seeing a lot of this college stuff being run at the NFL level. Whereas in the past they would say, we're not running any of that college stuff. You've got to be an NFL quarterback. We're seeing most guys in the pistol or the shotgun now hardly under center anymore. And it seems like coaches are adapting to the players that are coming out in college instead of making the players adapt to the NFL system. Have you kind of noticed that as well? Or am I off my rock? No, right you are, you are targeting that very well. Uh, I have the uh, responsibility to grade every weekend for f- pro football focus, uh, two different NFL games. So I get a chance to see four different teams every weekend uh, on the offensive side of the ball. And, and so I study the, the trends and uh, you can see it. You can see it coming just like a locomotive coming right down the tracks. You can see the uh, RPOs mm-hmm. uh, becoming more prominent in play calling. Uh, you can see quarterbacks getting outside the pocket quicker. Um, you, you just, you just have, have to understand that that's, that's the college game and that's what these college quarterbacks are bringing to the NFL. Consequently, I think any, any NFL team that doesn't have, uh, a two man staff just 
studying the college game week after week and and borrowing those ideas and bringing them to the to the discussion table to incorporate into their offense i think you're going to see uh you you see it right now and andy reed's one of the uh the leading coaches i think in in putting in some of those concepts you're going to see that on with every football team in the NFL within the next couple of years. Why do you think we, we're seeing that now? Why do you think all of a sudden guys are like er, hitting the brakes and turning the car around and deciding, hey, we're going to do this, whereas before it was very resisting uh, of coaches to do the college stuff? Well, I can, I can remember, Bob, when it was uh, we resisted putting a quarterback in the shotgun and having him throw a slant route. We, we felt in the NFL in those days that was not ever going to happen. You needed to be under center, Take your three quick drop and throw the slant. Now the college guys do that with no kind of a drop and, and they make it look pretty, pretty simple. Well, now you see the NFL doing all those kind of things. So consequently, uh, you know, the NFL is advancing along with, with the quarterbacks that, that are coming to play the position. But, uh, I, I just, you know, what I see, Bob, from week to week when I grade is I see a very, very limited uh, offensive line play. And when you have, when you have offensive linemen that cannot handle a defensive athletic rush, then you've got issues and you, you won't find more than a couple of teams in the NFL that have a true five man offensive line, uh, you know, unit that, that can really play the game. So when you don't have that, the, the equalizer is when you can spread your defense out and create the RPOs that they, they, they incorporate with the running game. Now you don't need that, you know, the, the, those five offensive linemen that are just world beaters. And that's what the NFL is recognizing is that the defensive linemen in the game today are so athletic and so powerful. You should see some of the th- plays that I see, Bob, uh, every week. You see an offensive tackle or an offensive center just get just get rolled back right into the quarterback's waist, and and it looks like the the offensive protector is on skates. So mm-hmm. consequently, that's what the spread offense of the college game brings. That's what the RPOs bring. And when you have more quarterbacks that have experience that you can incorporate it into your offense see i i would i would look at it and say the reason that they're doing it is because i I don't want to know if it's the owners or whoever it is but the pressure on drafting these quarterbacks early and having them succeed right away is out there like fans we want it now we wanted it yesterday there's no patience anymore in this world so i look at it from a fact of why are we bringing these quarterbacks here making them sit for three years learn something that maybe they're not good at why don't we just adapt to them and look these guys are really successful in college let's just do that in the nfl and make them successful at the NFL level. Well, I think you're seeing a little bit of that. It, it's not obviously, uh, you know, coming at you uh, at a at a fast pace, but I think you're seeing uh, like the the Ravens, for example. Uh, Lamar Jackson is the quarterback there yeah. that backs up uh, their starter, and consequently, you see them creating ways to put him into the game, getting his feet wet a little bit differently than maybe Mahomes was given, mm-hmm. but. Mahomes had his way, you know, Andy Reid had his way of getting Mahomes prepared. So consequently, I think you're going to see that. Uh, I, I would hope that the game doesn't push all these college guys into a starting role as, as a rookie, 
but uh, this the the blueprint of a Patrick Mahomes or what they're doing with this young guy at at Baltimore might be more the norm, and consequently, you're going to have more polished and more productive quarterback play. Why is Andy Reid so good at developing quarterbacks? Well, I you know I, I think you have to look at Andy Reid's you know his 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 uh, journey through through his coaching career. You know he he coached under Mike Holmgren, mm-hmm. and and I know Mike personally, and I know he's such a fine quarterback coach and uh i think andy was able to to learn from that then he had some experience at byu where they just had one great quarterback after another uh at byu so he was exposed to all of that and then he consequently he got to the to the philadelphia eagles and um uh he he was able to bring on donovan McNabb and I remember being the head coach at Rutgers, and I would coach against McNabb at Syracuse, and mm-hmm. he was a man among boys. Well, consequently, that's who Andy had to work with, and Andy developed. He he was very patient. He he developed McNabb over a number of years, and I think he learned a great deal on how to bring a quarterback along. Consequently, now years later, he's got the right blueprint, and uh, he's doing he's pressing all the right buttons. When you were born. You did not come out of the womb saying, I am going to be a quarterback guru. When did that hit you like that was your path in life, like this is what you were meant to do? Wow. Was there like one quarterback <laughs> that like you worked with or experience that you had that, that, you know, we have experiences in our lives that like, like I always thought I was going to go into play-by-play. And obviously I'm doing the talk route and it's completely different than the play-by-play route. Did it all in college, never did the talk route and then boom, discovered it. And then here I am. Was there some kind of moment like that for you where you thought you were going to do this, then all of a sudden you're developing these guys and this is the path I'm going to follow now. Well, it's like what I tell the quarterbacks that I train uh, oftentimes for the very first time, all these young college guys that have come out of great success stories, but I'll tell them, you know, a quarterback just doesn't wake up in the morning and roll out of bed and say, I'm going to go back and drop back and throw the ball. You know, you have to develop that skill. You have to develop your feet. You have to develop your rhythm. You have to develop your balance. And it takes an inordinate amount of reps. Uh, consequently, I think that's probably how my career, you know, unfolded. Mm-hmm. And that was, I, I started in a, in, in, in a journey that had me on the defensive side of the ball uh, George Seifert was my mentor uh, up at the University of Oregon. And then I switched over to John Robinson, who was also my mentor. So I had two really strong coaches that, no that helped me develop. And consequently, I started as a defensive backfield coach. And then I, I advanced to a special teams coach, uh, which was unheard of in those days because, you know, they didn't start having special teams coordinators until uh more recent times and and then i i switched over i was asked to coach the quarterbacks and i had a quarterback named eric hipple and he was uh drafted in the first uh we i i'm not sure if it was the first round but he was drafted by the detroit lions and i had him for two years in college and he he was so much fun to coach and he was such a a a man's man and i just fell in love with being around that kind of a guy and uh, I think that was the very beginning of my my quarterback journey. Was there any quarterback you were writing? Oh, God, I can't wait to get rid of this guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I'd never take never take that uh, that tact. But uh, uh, you know, I I uh, I had uh, Terry Bradshaw's younger brother, Craig Bradshaw, and that was the year at Utah State when I had Eric Hipple, and those two guys were the same year, and it was the only time that two quarterbacks from the same team were drafted 
by the NFL since uh, King Hill and Frank Ryan came out of Rice Institute back in those days. But so um, Craig Bradshaw was was a guy that I had to find a way to get to play, you know, but Hipple was the was the go to guy. And uh, but I, I loved them both. And and uh, no, I can't answer that. I have had a guy where I said, God, I can't wait to get rid of this guy. <laughs> you were on that, obviously not on, but part of the coaching staff for that 23 2003 Chiefs team that scored like it was nobody's business. I mean, what you guys did offensively those years is what we're seeing now in 2018. Just anytime you touched the football, you felt like you could score, right? Oh, it, it was it was it was such a strong uh, theme that uh, when we got in the red zone, we're not. We're not kicking field goals, and and we just we just lit it up at scoring touchdowns, and we we had uh, a great running game inside the red zone. Priest Holmes was special. We had a great offensive line, but Dick Vermeil was part of that uh, offensive uh, direction. Al Saunders did such a great job as our coordinator, and we had Mike Solari, and I mean we just had an all star staff. Charlie Joyner was our receiver coach. James Saxon, who's still coaching the Steelers right now, running backs. So we we really had a, a terrific staff, and that's a compliment to Dick Vermeil. Give me the best Dick Vermeil story you have. Maybe it's not football related. Maybe it is, but give give me your best Dick okay. Vermeil story. <laughs> I remember Dick sent me out uh, to um, scout a a quarterback, and we were looking for a, a a free agent low low round draft pick. So I I went to um, Tulsa, and uh, I I brought a, a quarterback back for the mini camp, and. Uh, I, his name was James Killian, and um, I remember that name. And he um, he's did you now, just like put like a sheet over him and grab him, <laughs> stick him in the car, and say, "Let's go." No, no, I I worked him out, and you know, at first I said, "Well, he doesn't. He's not as accurate as I'd like to see him be with, you know, moving targets and that sort of thing." But um, boy, there's something about him. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's just something about his his demeanor, uh, how he how he translates information. So I I brought him back for mini camp. It was a rookie mini camp. And, uh, I got him behind center and he threw and man, he just was, he couldn't even complete a, a, a three step drop pass in this particular three day event. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the three days, Dick Vermeil calls a staff meeting and I know that he's gonna, he's gonna call on me because all of a sudden this quarterback was not an NFL caliber guy and I totally missed evaluated well i decided to go in and sit in the very back of the staff room because i thought man if he can't see me he he may not call on me and the very first thing dick vermeil says is uh terry shea uh what can you tell me about this quarterback we just had in for these three days he says i want you to know terry that you must be able to pass the football in order to play NFL quarterback. <laughs> and I thought, oh man. So, but he was great. He, he was, uh, he was as good as it gets. He was so loyal. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you see all these coordinators being fired in the middle of the season. You saw that what happened to the Cleveland Browns. Mm-hmm. What a disgrace. And Dick Vermeil was so much more about loyalty and about, hey, I brought you here because I believed in you as a coach and I'm going to make sure you have success rather than, uh, he can't do it. I'm going to fire him in the middle of the year. You know, he did that with Greg Robinson. You know, that, that 2003 team, but you couldn't stop anybody. Just kind of like this team we're watching right now, they have their struggles on the defensive side. And everybody was calling for Greg Robinson, saying, we got to get rid of this guy. we got to get rid of this guy. And I remember Vermeil getting in, in, you know, at a press conference one time. He goes, what do you want me to say, that he's all effed up or something like that? You know, like, <laughs> and people would look at that and they go, boy, maybe he's loyal to a fault. But I think everybody – 
wants to work for a guy like Dick Vermeil, who will take the bullets for you and stand up for you and know that he hired you and he has confidence that you're going to get the job done. It doesn't happen in America like that anymore. I mean, that, he's a unique being. Oh, he was. And in the, in the uh, pressures of the NFL world, it, it, he, was, he was so, so different. And I remember driving to work and getting out of my car, and I'm saying, man, am I glad to be a Kansas City Chief. And it was because of Dick Vermeil. Do you look back on that 03 team and, and wonder what could have been? I sure do. And, you know, we we had everything going our way, it seemed like. We had a home game. That was the year we played the Colts, and nobody punted in that mm-hmm. game. Manning was was Manning and, and Trent Green was just as good. The only change of possession was when Priest Holmes fumbled a a a, a, a caught pass that he had he advanced for about twenty five yards and somebody came up from behind and poked the ball out of his arm. And that was the only change of possession and consequently we lost that game. But uh um that was that was a team that had no egos and uh, we had great players. And you, know, you can't help but think Here's a Tony Gonzalez or a Willie Rowe for, you know, a Trent Green or a Priest Holmes, uh, just, you know, Eddie Kennison, all those, Dante Hall, mm-hmm. all those really striking players. And so we had everything going, and, and everyone believed in, in the coaching staff and what Coach Vermeil was all about. And we just found a game that uh, went the wrong way on us. But we could have probably gone all the way to the Super Bowl on that particular team. Do you think, I guess not think, but like look back on that and the way that, that Vermeil handled it? Because, I mean, there was, I don't want to say clear division or anything like that, but you guys were so good on offense and the defense couldn't stop anybody. How did he keep the synergy and the, and the calmness inside that building so you wouldn't start fighting and infighting and all that stuff? Well, we had a, first of all, I think it started with the fact that we had a really good relationship intra-staff wise. Uh, I remember all the defensive coaches, they were all good hardworking guys. Greg Robinson was a hardworking guy. Uh, there was no uh, bickering between the offensive coordinator and the defensive coordinator. And Dick Vermeil was the uh, common denominator, I have to believe. And, um, you know, he eventually uh, allowed the defensive uh, side of the ball to run its course. And then we suffered that tough loss against, uh, against the Colts. Mm-hmm. And consequently, I think, uh, management stepped in and said, Dick, you're, you're going to have to really seriously consider a, a change just to give us some, some new hope and new direction. And I think he got pressured so, so badly from management to make that decision. And he, but he, to, to Dick Vermeil's credit, he allowed the season to play out. And, uh, uh, we practiced very well against each other. So you never saw the division that you might think from the outside looking in. That oh man, those offensive guys must must really you know despise the defensive guys, but it never was that way at all. Yeah, because I could see like you, you know just imagining in my mind like why don't you stop somebody on defense? Like like you know the offensive coaches yelling at the defensive coaches, but that never went on with you guys. It huh? never did. It never. I never heard that. And uh, uh, I used to ride to work with a lot of those defensive coaches, so I I remember that very well. You guys were carpooling back in the day. We were, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Saving gas. <laughs> yeah, you've got to do that. Um, you also coach with Bill Walsh, and that's like one of the big legends, obviously, of the NFL world. What's the one thing you took away from him? The one thing I took away from Bill Walsh was how he presented concepts to his football team. He was such a master at installing uh, that you just sit there and just 
I, I used to sit there and not be mesmerized because I was his offensive coordinator at Stanford for three years. So I sat there, and but I just was so impressed with how he presented, how he made the individual player feel like he was almost that 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 circle up there on the grease board. And uh, he, he made the individual football player on offense relate to everything he had to offer when he presented. And he was a master at uh, – I'd go into Bill oftentimes uh, and I'd say, Coach, here's what we've got. We've got an issue. I, I was doing all kinds of responsibilities back in those days uh, as the associate head coach and academic coordinator, all that. And so I, w- I would go in and I'd say, Coach, we have an issue. We have a problem. And he would not only give you one answer, but he'd give you two to three ways to solve a, a problem. He was he was so uh, just so bright. And um, on game day, he was uh, he was a great play caller. And consequently, those are those are great football coaching traits that I was able to uh, carry with me. What's the advice you have for a parent of a young quarterback who wants their kid to play in the NFL? If I got a son and I come to you and say, what, what do I need to do here? What's your advice to parents? I oftentimes run into that. In, in, uh, in, in fact, I devoted a whole chapter of that in my book that I wrote several years ago on developing quarterbacks. It was a chapter on the role of the parent. And I, I think the parent uh, tends to get so overly involved when the young athlete is at age uh, seventh grade through maybe junior in high school. You know, he, he or she believes that their son is destined for greatness and they put so much pressure on the young guy. And sometimes they'll, they'll, they'll kind of direct them away from playing other sports so they can concentrate on just the one sport, which I think is the biggest mistake, uh, in, in this day and age. And so consequently, I'd, I'd tell the parents to, you know, support their, their young athlete. Let them experience as many sports as they can. And consequently, by the time he gets to his junior or senior in high school, you will know faster than anyone whether he's destined to be a NFL player. And uh, consequently, I, I think that's, that's, that is very difficult for you, for parents to appreciate and to, to apprehend. Consequently, those things don't happen as much, but, uh, let let your young son be a be an athlete. Let him experience different sports, and then let him prove that he is capable of playing at a high level when he's a junior or senior in high school. And if he is not capable of that, then he's probably never going to make it to the NFL. And you have to be there to support him. Where did this specialization come from? Because I talked to Gene Watson, one of the assistants to the general managers with the Royals all the time, and he'll come on about once a year and he'll give that same message. Don't specialize. Play all the sports. Here you are. Play all the sports. Don't specialize. Somewhere along the line, somebody thought, we got to specialize and just make you focus on one sport. And here are guys at the top of the profession dealing with the professional athletes saying, don't do that. How did we get lost in that world where specialization was key? Well, I I, I bet it starts with the coaching part of it. Uh, coaches become very selfish. Consequently, they, they demand that uh, young freshman in high school or sophomore in high school, you have to decide because we have summer commitments and you have to play for us. No, you can't play for that other sport. I think you see that go on consistently throughout high school. And consequently, that's, that's what, you know, that's what directs these guys into a, into a one way road. But, uh, you know, there was a, a statistic, Bob, that, I, that came out after this past year's draft. 
and it had to it related back to the the 2016 draft. So last year was 2000. No, it was the 2017 draft, and this year was the 2018 draft, and mm-hmm. next year will be 2019. But is the 2017 draft where they did a little research and they said of the top 32 picks in the NFL draft, 29 of the 32 were multiple sport athletes. And if parents can't appreciate that, and if high school coaches can't appreciate that, you, you can't get any more blatant than that kind of a, a statistic. Yeah, that, that it is eye-opening when you hear that, because I think for so many years, and I, I guess maybe for a 20-year span, it was like, well, and I, I, my first job was down in Texas, so kids didn't have gym class, they had football class, or they had baseball class, or they had basketball class. I'm like, but what if they want to do all three? They're like, yep, got to choose. I'm like, well, that's stupid. <laughs> I don't understand that, you know? I don't know why you got to choose, and then that kind of became the norm for a while, you know? Oh, I I know, and it's become even more prominent in this day and age, and and uh, especially when you get uh, television opportunities, and you say, "Well, you're not going to be on television if you play baseball, but if you play football, yes, yeah. you know." So it it's it's it stems from selfishness, and uh, the athlete is the it, you know it is the victim in this. College head coach, offensive coordinator in the NFL, quarterback coach, quarterback guru. You've done a lot. If you could do one thing differently, what would it be? Probably going back to, uh, I became a head football coach at San Jose State University, and we we were in the top twenty my very first year. Uh, Pro Football Weekly uh, voted me Coach of the Year, and for being your first year in college football, that's a that's you know you don't appreciate that until you look back on it. But um, so we had two great seasons at San Jose State, and that's when I got the call from Bill Walsh, and Bill said, uh, Terry, I need you to come to Stanford with me. And uh, I'm going to coach the team for a couple of years, and then you're going to take over. And I thought, well, there's there's my dream job, you know, to, to go to Stanford and someday play in the uh, coach in the Rose Bowl and that sort of thing. So I left a very uh, flourishing situation as the head coach, and I became an assistant coach again. And eventually, I worked my way back to a head coaching position. But I think that was a a, a decision, a pro- professional decision that I reflect back on now and say. You know, as much as I loved Bill Walsh and as much as I respected him, uh, that was probably the decision that, that probably slowed me down in my, in my career. Consequently, um, I look back on that, but, uh, to have the, uh, the opportunity, Bob, to coach, uh, it's unbelievable when I think back. I've, I've had great years with Dick Vermeil. I had great years with Bill Walsh. I had a great year with Marty Schottenheimer. I mean, that's a who's who in, in the coaching world. No doubt. And now you get a chance maybe to coach seven-on-seven seven women's football, right? <laughs> All right. Kansas City, here we come. Why Why didn't you get the Stanford job? What happened there? Well, uh, my very first year, they asked me to go back to Duke, and uh, 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 Tom Butters, the AD back there, offered me the Duke job after one year at Stanford. And we had just had a great year at Stanford. We'd beaten Penn State in the blue in the blockbuster bowl, which is a January 1st bowl back in those days. And, and, uh, I turned it down because Bill said, uh, Terry, I think, I think you're, you're better off staying here at Stanford and becoming the head coach someday. Well, um, then two years went by after that and, uh, we, we didn't have quite the years Mm -hmm. and, um, Bill got into a little skirmish with the athletic director and he, he, he called me up and said, Terry, I got to meet you for breakfast. And this is after year three. And he says, I'm going to resign. And uh, I just can't, I can't work here again uh, under the conditions that uh, have taken place. And so I said, well, coach, 
don't you think you could have one more year left because we might have a pretty good team? And uh, he says, no, I'm leaving. And I said, and he said, this is probably going to hurt you because you're, you're my guy. So, and sure enough, I, I was not destined to be the head coach at Stanford. Then on to Rutgers and on to the NFL. And here we sit. <laughs> yes. And it's great to be here with you, Bob. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm no Bill Walsh. Coach, I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with coaching legend Terry Shea. It's amazing how one guy living here in Kansas City could have such an impact on the quarterback position in the NFL.